0: In 1975, Stanley Kubrick released an ambitious, lyrically beautiful, and shamefully underappreciated masterwork in Barry Lyndon. This amazing display of photography, costume work, and lighting is a technical marvel and remains as an important film not only in Kubrick's catalog, but in cinema history. Barry Lyndon is an extremely influential film for many contemporary filmmakers like Wes Anderson, Martin Scorsese, Sofia Coppola, and Lars von Trier. What made Barry Lyndon a technical marvel in 1975, as well as in 2012? Why is Barry Lyndon known as a forgotten Stanley Kubrick film? And despite its reputation, why is Barry Lyndon considered Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece? Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon is the subject of episode 102 of the AuteurCast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AuteurCast, the podcast dedicated to filmmakers their are movies and film criticism. I am your host.
1: My name is Rudy Obias. And I'm West Anthony, and we're recording this podcast by candlelight. <laughs> Ow, son of a bit Oh, screw this. I'm going to turn the lights on.
0: <laughs> I was like, what, what's going on over there? Uh, joining us for this episode, he's a blogger for BattleshipRetention.com. Scott Nye, thank you so much for joining us once again here on the AuteurCast.
2: Happy and honored to be here and
0: uh b- before we actually get started i would like to thank you for uh all the scheduling conflicts that we've been going through for the past uh week uh our listeners wouldn't know of any uh things going on behind the curtain at uh at the authorcast cuz uh you know if, if if i do my job correctly our listeners will be getting episodes as as uh, as readily as they're available, but I've actually been having problems with my internet connection for the past week. I was without internet for a week. If You can imagine what that is like. Uh, it's pretty frustrating um, that I've actually had to go in actually had to go into an office or or go into a Starbucks to to do to do my my day job. Uh, so it's just kind of weird to be back online. Uh, I've had internet now for probably a day and it's just weird uh i guess to get back into this routine so scott thank you for for accommodating uh this this crazy scheduling that we've been going through
2: not a problem gave me more time to think about the movie
0: yes uh
2: uh, so if you're listening to this podcast
0: for the first time every few weeks we pick a filmmaker and then discuss and highlight the movies in their catalog chronologically at the end of the series we have a retrospective episode where we discuss the filmmakers themselves and then we try to analyze what makes them an auteur or at the very least what makes them worth watching and discussing in our current series we're discussing the films of stanley kubrick and this is our episode on his 1975 film barry linden Wes, do you have a synopsis for us
1: Redmond Barry is a hot-headed young jerk, who nevertheless uses his wits and wiles to get ahead in the polite society of the 18th century. Well before photo ID, but not before boats. After a series of misadventures, he latches on to Lady Linden, who is not only beautiful in a porcelain doll kind of way, but also fabulously wealthy. The only bee in Barry's powdered bonnet is the lady's son, Lord Bullingdon, who is also a young jerk, but a young jerk with money, which counts for a lot, just as the Kardashians. Can our callow protagonists get it together in the age of reason? Or are we in for the most sumptuously photographed object lesson in cinema history? Uh, I, I believe uh,
0: the latter is uh, what, uh, what we're in for. Now, this is Stanley Kubrick's 1975 film, Barry Lyndon. Uh, and I, I feel that this movie in stanley kubrick's whole catalog is kind of under uh, underappreciated i feel it, it feels like a lot of people when they first think of stanley kubrick they don't necessarily think of this movie first um i, I think i'm pretty much guilty of that as well even though that this is definitely le- number one or number two of my favorite stanley kubrick films um on a technical level, I feel that this is his masterpiece. Um, So in saying that, Scott and I, what are your thoughts on Barry Lyndon overall? And why do you feel, uh, I I guess, that people kind of overlook Barry Lyndon in Stanley Kubrick's entire catalog?
2: Yeah, it's funny you should say so. I remember back in college days before I'd seen the movie, my friend and I were talking about films of Stanley Kubrick. And he was like, yeah, you know, I've seen them all, except for that one that nobody else has seen, referring to Barry Lyndon. Um, And... Ever since then, I've always been intrigued by it. And the first time I saw it was a few months later, and it just blew me away. I mean, all of the accusations that Kubrick's later films, you know, weren't terribly human just seemed to fall away. As cold and distant as the movie can sometimes be, it's, I think, immensely empathetic in some regards, especially considering just kind of how big a bastard Barry is. Um, and then I saw it about nine months later on the, uh, in a theater on the big screen, and that just, I mean, that just won me over. And ever since then, I've considered it his masterpiece. And a lot of people have, you know, varying theories on why it gets so disregarded. The most pervasive is just that it doesn't have the hook that many of his later movies do, you know. Doctor Strangelove, love, comedic take on the end of the world. Uh, 2001, well, it's, you know, all in space. You know, Eyes Wide Shut tackles sex. Full Metal Jack is about war and The Shining is a batshit crazy horror movie. <laughs> But Barry Lyndon is kind of the staid uh, period piece, and period pieces have never been terribly sexy to especially American moviegoers. But I think once people get into it, they'll notice just what an incredibly rich work it is.
0: Uh, definitely. We'll, we'll definitely talk about the, the period uh, piece aspect of, of this film. And I, I think you really hit it right there uh, on the head that I, I, I really do agree with the fact that people don't um, – even myself, when first thinking of uh, Stanley Kubrick, this is not the first film that pops in my mind. Um, West Anthony, what are your thoughts on uh, Stanley Kubrick's 1975 film, Barry Lyndon, and I guess why do you feel that people overlook this one?
1: Oh, this is the one that everybody just considers uh, long, slow, and boring. That's, that's basically about it. And it, it, it is long. It's a little over three hours long, and it's, it comes uh, with an intermission. Uh, it is slow, but not, not I would say, uh, unnecessarily slow. It is, it, it is paced exactly as it needs to be paced. And I don't consider it boring in the slightest. Barry Lyndon is actually the first Stanley Kubrick film I ever saw in a theater. And I saw it on its original release when I was eight. Uh, oh. That's parenting in the 70s for you. And my mother just thought, oh, well, it's rated PG and it's got costumes. I mean, how bad could it be? So... And I, I was the only one who liked it. You know, she didn't care for it either. <laughs> but uh, Was it
2: really rated PG? Yeah.
1: <laughs> for it, all the nudity. It still the is. The 70s
2: were a weird dime.
1: It's still rated PG.
2: It's... <laughs> I've never noticed that for some reason.
1: Yeah, well, uh, but yeah, I, I even back then when I first saw it, I I liked it. I've always loved this movie. I, I think that it's really spectacular. I, I always champion Barry Lyndon as a, a an, an overlooked underrated, uh, criminally unregarded uh, masterpiece not just from Stanley Kubrick but from anybody. It's really sad that it, every time you know people talk about him this is one of the movies that kind of gets left out uh, Barry Lyndon only recently got a, an anamorphic transfer for home video I mean, after several home video releases of uh, pretty much all of his other films they took their sweet time getting something together on this one and it, it just made its Blu-ray debut like last year. And I don't, I don't know why I really, I, well, I mean, I like, I, I sort of know why just the reasons that I was speaking of earlier, but I really feel like Warner brothers should have known better. They really should have gotten behind this thing a little better, particularly since, you know, the, it's, it's already been made. It's not going to cost them that much more to have uh, made a, uh, an, an, an anamorphic or high definition transfer a few years back. The, the thing's already bought and paid for. Well, what's 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 the harm? Uh, more people should have the opportunity to see this movie. I, it's one that I don't even think I've ever seen on Turner Classic Movies, and they could they could certainly get it in there. I mean, you know, maybe they'd have to show it a little late at night. But jeez, I just it's it's sad. It, I I would love to to just recommend it to strangers passing by on the street, but. <laughs> I I don't feel like it's something that you're going to get too many people on board for this one I'm afraid. So it's I mean, going to be one of those one of those little uh, polished gems that uh, just uh, you and I are going to be uh, keeping to ourselves.
0: But it, it's just so so strange with this film. I mean, I, I guess why it, it is so overlooked. It seems like shot after shot after shot after shot of this film, and it's like you said, Wes, a little over three hours, where it's just immaculate. It's just uh, every time I watch this movie, I just kind of grin or just like, God damn it, Stanley Kubrick! Like you're working on such on this really high level of filmmaking that I don't think uh, many of filmmakers have uh, have topped or uh, I can see uh, the influence this film has on on, um, modern uh, filmmakers um, much like in um, like Wes Anderson for example Uh, as we're recording this the movie Moonrise Kingdom hasn't been released but I wrote in my review how meticulous that movie is and it it did remind me of, of Barry Lyndon how meticulous this movie is it seemed like there's so much detail in um, in this film, I, I, don't, I don't want to say more so than any other um, Stanley Kubrick film, but there's so much detail in this film. It seems like uh, Wes Anderson took a lot from uh, Barry Lyndon in regards to how he makes a movie. Um, Scott, what are your thoughts on, I guess, how detailed this film is overall?
2: Well, it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. It goes without saying almost. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, like you said, every time I watch it, and I've seen it now five times, It's just, I I find it immensely watchable just because every new frame is just like such a wealth of detail and information and beauty. And you can just stare at uh, the way, I mean, it's often compared to paintings of the period, but the extra joy is that, you know, it becomes a new painting from the beginning of one shot to the end. And there's just such a richness there that, I mean, I was saying this too with uh, the films of Bellatar, you know, as slow as those seem, I mean, Half the joy is just seeing how he gets from one place to another and keeps such immense, perfect control over the frame at each step.
0: It's uh, it's, it's funny that you bring up uh, Bellatar. It seems, uh, again, with um, Barry Lyndon, and I, I kind of wish that I, I did see this in the theater at least once, and I, I'm kind of envious of both of you guys for seeing it in, in the theater at least once. Um, it feels like when you brought up Bellatar, that's really the only way I could watch any of his films is on, on the big screen. I, I I feel I can't watch his movies at home uh, on my TV because I feel I'd be distracted by other things going on around me. Um, luckily when I was, every time I watch Barry Lyndon, uh, I don't get distracted with things around me because I, I am just that immersed into the the, the photography of this film and, and namely the story. Scott, you bring up an interesting point that uh, there's this really Human element to this film. There's a, a lot of, uh, like that's one thing that what we've been talking about with Stanley Kubrick films, uh, or at least a moniker that goes on to his work is that it's very cold. Where I don't feel that this is a very cold film. Uh, there's a lot of uh, emotion, a lot of relationshipy stuff going on in this film. Um, Wes, what are your thoughts on? I guess how human this film feels.
1: Yeah. Once again, here is where you're seeing. One of the things that I really love about Kubrick is the way that he doesn't tell you how to think, how to feel about what's going on. He just presents it in a straightforward, dispassionate manner. Now, in this case, also you have this really wonderful ironic uh, narration, which uh, also helps. And that's another thing about the movie that's also kind of it. There's a lot of laughs in this movie. I mean, certainly less as you get towards the uh, the third act. But definitely, on the way up in the the first half of the movie, for sure, there are some some very funny moments uh, but overall, that's one of the things about Stanley Cooper because it he's not he's not laying on a lot of uh emotion for you. you have to bring it yourself it's up to you to decide how you feel about these characters and how you feel about these situations and it's something that I think a lot of modern audiences are not used to they're used to being more emotionally manipulated by filmmakers. And that's something that Kubrick doesn't necessarily traffic in so much. I mean, he definitely has things to say about the human condition. Throughout his work, he has these things to say. But he's not necessarily getting in your face about judgment calls. I mean, he's going to present this this information to you and his ideas in a relatively straightforward manner, and then you've got to take it from there. So... That's It's up to the, the viewer to sort of make some of these judgment calls. The narration certainly kind of helps to sort of tip things in one direction or another. But in spite of that, though, because, yes, on on the first half of the film, Redmond Barry is, uh, you're, you're sort of on his side, even though he is kind of a rakish lout and kind of a, a dope in, in some instances. But then as you get towards the second half, I mean, you see the way he interacts with his son, uh, you can see there there's a, a very real and genuine affection there. You see that there's some some actual, honest emotional growth on the part of the character, which you kind of need because it it sort of makes you know all the things that happen afterward that much more effective.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's interesting that you you bring up the narration, and I, I feel that the, the narration of this film, and for the most part, I, I'm usually not. I don't like films that have heavy narration and this film definitely has heavy narration, but I actually really enjoy uh, the narration of this film because, simply put, it feels like a novel. It feels so rich in that way that I feel this is one of the very few instances where um, a narrator throughout this whole... And the narration is practically throughout this whole film. It really does enrich the story and does engross you, and it really does feel like a novel, Um, even the way the, the prose are written, how the... The, their their narrator is, speaks it's really engaging and um, and albeit sometimes it, the narration does tip one way or the other of how you're supposed to feel about the situation how this uh, how this is being presented but I think overall I like that and it, it's just strange to me to think that. A movie that's completely cinematic in terms of of scope and photography but it still uses that 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 crutch of narration it works so well where it really feels like it shouldn't
1: well i don't think it's a crutch here that that's one of the things that i like about it so much is that it's not one of those instances where like think about the some of the narration in the killing It's like well then this character went over here it's like, well it's- that's not what's happening in this movie in this film the narration which is supplied by the, the wonderful uh, british actor uh, michael hordern uh it's commenting on the things that you're seeing and sort of illuminating other elements that you might not you wouldn't otherwise be aware of like when barry linden parts with the uh, the the german woman and the narrator has some some things to say about her that are pretty funny and And the main character character has absolutely no way of knowing these things. So we're we're all the narrator is kind of sharing a private joke, you know, with us that the other characters are not privy to. And then just even the, the narration in the very opening of the movie, which is a really hilarious bit of misdirection, because you're the scene that you're looking at, you're watching something happen and you're not entirely sure what it's about. And meanwhile, the narrator is going on about something That might have been something else, but then the two things kind of come together in a very hilarious and unexpected way, and then you get the idea. And and that opening bit of narration really helps to set the tone in terms of sort of the droll irony of a lot of what's going to follow in in the story. Uh, And also, think about because this was a big, you know, this movie was a big influence, big, big influence on Martin Scorsese when he was making The Age of Innocence. And think about the narration in that movie. Again, it was the same kind of thing. It wasn't a matter of, you know, well, and then these characters went over here, and then it snowed, and then it wasn't snowing. It, the, the narration in The Age of Innocence, which was uh, done by Joanne Woodward, uh, there is... There, as in Barry Lyndon, the narration in The Age of Innocence is sort of commenting on the things that are going on that you're seeing in the movie. It, it's It's adding an extra dimension to the story. It's not just telling you the story. It's not just reinforcing the stuff that you're already seeing in front of you. It's not just telling you stuff that you already know if you're paying attention. That's, I think, what makes the narration so wonderful in Barry Lyndon, and that's why uh, I definitely wouldn't say that, that it was a crutch. I would say that it's it's really just uh, an integral part of the fabric of the film. Yeah, I think what I meant to say was, usually in films it, it's used as a
0: crutch. It's used as a shortcut to, to storytelling. Or, and or how? Just, um <laughs> Which uh, I guess a little tangent here, since I have we have Scott on on the show, and in regards to Wes Anderson, I feel um, for the most part Wes Anderson uses the crutch of, of of set design, of costuming, of kitsch as a shortcut to um, storytelling and um, and character work, um, which is one criticism I, I definitely have of him through throughout most of his films but we'll definitely get into that when we get into the wes anderson series um but uh scott you 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 saw moonrise kingdom uh and i want to talk about that for a very little bit uh uh, i'm sorry wes i I just since we have scott on the line i want to get his opinion on that um I, i i don't feel that he really uses that um the, the set design or the costuming as a crutch, uh, like he does in uh, the Darjeeling Limited or uh, the Life Aquatic.
2: Well, I, I mean, I've never thought that he did, really. I thought that, I've thought i always thought that he uses set design and costuming uh, as a very quick means to defining characters. And admittedly, in some cases, he does go overboard with it, specifically in Life Aquatic. But I think for the most part, it comes from character place and tends to define outward instead of... From out the outside in. Uh,
0: so, so I guess. Well, what are your thoughts on, on the narration in uh, Barry Lyndon? How Stanley Kubrick uses that uh, throughout the whole film?
2: Well, in addition to it just being an immense pleasure to listen listen to, and uh, what was the narrator's name again?
1: Michael Hordern. The yeah, great, very his, fine British actor.
2: His dulcet tones are always welcome every time they chime in, but it also underscores a lot of the film's themes about you know fate and sort of inevitability, and in it. You Know, addresses things that are going to happen, you know, maybe a couple minutes from now in screen time, so you kind of see the direction of the stories coming, but it's still like it makes it all the more heartbreaking. Like when he's playing uh croquet with his son, and while the narrator is talking about how Barry's going to end up childless and broke, it's just like yeah. all the more heartbreaking and just un- like I said, underscores the larger themes at play.
1: Yeah, the narrative foreshadowing, particularly in that moment, that was something that. I had kind of been debating whether or not that was necessary, whether or not it hurt or helped the the story because then well now you know something is going to happen, and it's not going to be good, <laughs> but then I realized that you know, it still works because when when tragedy strikes it it is still nevertheless an incredibly moving moment, even though you see it coming, although you don 't necessarily know how it's going to happen. Uh, the moment when it arrives it it really is kind of heart-wrenching i i think that the use of the narration
0: in that in the croquet scene is is very effective and i think it does help the film rather than hurt it and it's just from that standpoint that you know this is going to happen um even if you don't have that first uh thought in your mind and but it is going to happen you're just waiting for it to happen and you're waiting to see how it happens right, and right. as it slowly unfolds to get to the point of, of uh i believe his name was brian his 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 son's birthday uh you kind of get an idea how it's going to happen and it's pretty pretty tragic thing to see it's a pretty horrific thing to see especially when the, the kid knows he's going to die <laughs> um and the, his two parents are at the death at his deathbed and he's requesting these He's, he's uh, requesting these things from his parents. Uh, something that only I feel adults should ever say to people, but hearing it from this eight-year-old kid is really heartbreaking. Um, it, it's definitely, especially the part of the film when it's really going downhill for this for this character, Barry Lyndon. Um, it, it's one of the mo- <laughs> most heartbreaking things in, in this movie, but then it just kind of snowballs and gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and worse for this uh, for, for this uh for this uh character uh oh, scott
1: oh go go ahead Watch. just a quick note since you you know brought up uh, wes anderson already uh alec baldwin and royal tenenbaums there is a direct line between the narration in barry linden and the narration in royal tenenbaums if you uh if you forced uh wes anderson to give you an answer i'm sure he would confirm it
0: and uh i don't want to be too
1: spoilery
0: but he, he does that again and um Moonrise Kingdom. With Alec um, Baldwin?
1: I can't,
0: not Alec Baldwin. Who? Uh, Scott, do you remember the actor who was the... Um,
2: the... Yeah, the, the great Bob Balaban.
1: Oh, yeah. really? Okay. Hey, you know what? Uh, listen, uh, filmmakers of the world, uh, if, you, uh, if you want a, a voice to uh, provide some ironic narration for your film, uh, right here, give me a shot. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea how much I would love to be the next Michael Hordern in Barry Lyndon how awesome I would, love would that be that.
2: yes i would love it uh
0: you can follow him at uh on twitter at dr west anthony and, um but it, i guess getting back to the narration i mean it seems like lesser filmmakers are moved I mean, why i get so turned off by it in movies is it, it is used as a shortcut it is used to say well here's the situation and i'm just gonna go away but then come back later on and i i do like the fact that this narrator doesn't just tell you what's going on, but, it, and again, informs you of other things that are going on in, in the plot, but it really engages you. And I don't want to say that this is, um, is it too pretentious to say that this is, you know, just as much, uh, a character to the film as Barry Lyndon himself. Um, it, it kind of seems like it's kind of the voice of God or, or something informing, uh, informing the audience of this is, uh, this is what the people are. This is what the situation is, and this is how everything's going down. But the voice of God that has uh, this this kind of a sense of humor, um, Scott, you you bring up an interesting uh, point. Is something that I, I would like to touch upon about the 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 idea of chance, the idea of inevitability. Um, I mean, throughout this whole film, the character Barry Lyndon is kind of this uh, gambler. I mean, he plays a lot of cards, but he's um, sometimes he cheats at, at at cards, and I think that's an an idea that Stanley Kubrick is trying to get at uh, is this idea of chance, that it's by chance that this, uh, this man, um, Redmond Barry, ended up to be Barry Lyndon. I mean, of course, a lot of it had to do with his charm and charisma, but he had to be put in a situation uh, that, that was put into motion by chance um, to get into that situation. And I, I feel that that's a really important theme of this film.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's central to most of Kubrick's work. Um, but in this, he really capitalizes on it. And uh, just, I mean, you think of like all the circumstances that led to get buried to where he is in the film's second half or just like very little of it is by his own design, you know. He sets out to, you know, win the heart of his cousin and ends up, you know, enrolled in two different armies and eventually a gambling Assistant to a wealthy man, you know, almost you know, doing nothing along the way to get himself there.
0: And uh, I, I think the the the, the period pieceness of this—I mean, this film is set in the, uh, I believe, it's the 18th century uh, in in Europe—probably turned off a lot of uh, Americans, uh, American audiences to this film. And I, I can actually see why um, this is kind of overlooked, uh, despite. It's it's beautiful photography and engaging story. Um, I mean, I for one, I kind of, I don't want to say I seek out or or cringe to the fact of uh, watching a film that takes place uh, in a distinct period. But uh, I I feel that it it is going to be somewhat of a turnoff considering that the last film that Stanley Kubrick made was A Clockwork Orange, uh, a film that was vastly different from, from this film in Barry Lyndon.
1: Yeah, going from the near future to uh, the relatively distant past, uh, it is a bit of a leap, I suppose, for some people. But I really don't think that should discourage people. I really think that everybody ought to give this movie a chance. I mean, look, uh, even if you think that it's really long and slow and boring, look, you're at home. You're going to watch it at home. Just If you get tired, just put it on pause and go have a sandwich. Go take a nap. Go walk the dog. Do some laundry. I really feel that this is a very rewarding experience, and I think a lot of you are are missing out if you're just going to dismiss Barry Lyndon out of hand.
0: Uh, I agree. It's a very, <laughs> very rewarding uh, three hours uh, of a film. And I think about this movie being nominated. This movie was nominated for Best Picture uh, for the 48th uh, Academy Awards in 1976 for the movies of 1975. Uh, it was nominated but did not win, and Stanley Kubrick was also nominated for Best Director. But looking at the movies that were nominated for Best Picture that year, um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that it won the Best Picture award that year. Um, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, Jaws, and Nashville. I mean, these are pretty great uh, cin- uh, define his cinema history defining films. And I-, I don't know if Barry Lyndon necessarily should have won the Oscar in, in this point. Um, just looking at what movies it was going up against this year?
2: Oh, I'm not the biggest fan of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but uh in some ways I wouldn't wish upon it the legacy destined to most best picture winners, which is eventually just kind of being discarded and considered overrated.
1: I uh it is kind of weird that Barry uh, Lyndon definitely seems a sort of out of place with the, against the other four nominees. Uh and I don't know necessarily that I would have given it the nod for best picture either, uh, given the tenor of the times uh, in 1975. Uh, a costume drama is kind of an anomaly in that, particularly in that era. That was something that really had gone gone away by like the late 60s. And there, there really weren't too many of those things going on anymore. Certainly not costume dramas as lavish. And as opulent and as beautiful as this one, um, sometimes they would, you know, they they made nominal comebacks here and there. In fact, actually, the the director of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Melish Foreman, went and directed uh, Amadeus in 1984. That was a big ass uh, costume spectacle. And actually, it's really funny. The uh, the cinematographer for Amadeus, he he begged Kubrick for the lens that Kubrick used to get the the candlelit shots, and Kubrick said no. He never loaned that out to anybody. Nobody ever got those shots the way Kubrick did in Barry Lyndon. Ever. Ever. Because he used it in that movie and then he just put it away somewhere. He was like in a drawer in the garage or something.
0: Yeah, and I I can see why. I mean, one of the biggest takeaways from this film uh, is the use of light in this movie. I mean, from what I know of this movie, it's mostly natural light. Uh, I, I might be mistaken to think that perhaps... Ninety percent of this film is is natural light, namely, uh, the scenes that are in, uh, in in these beautiful mansions or castles at night, with thousands, hundreds and hundreds of of, of ca- uh, lit by hundreds and hundreds of candles. Uh, it's it's the most breathtaking thing I've I've ever seen uh, in movies, and I wish I would have seen this on the big screen at some point. Um, actually, they, they are in New York. There is a um, an Academy screening of bear linden hosted by or, or being moderated by or presented by um bennett miller i believe uh that's the director of moneyball um and, and capote uh and i believe he's putting on this thing for, uh so perhaps i will i will try to watch that movie uh on the big screen sometime but you uh, definitely so, should
1: <laughs> i would highly recommend that anybody anywhere given the chance to see barry linden on the big screen uh you should definitely do so that uh that lens by the way it was uh it was supposedly developed by the uh the zeiss uh, optical company it was supposed to be used by nasa in the apollo moon landings so there's another piece of the conspiratorial puzzle for everybody
0: uh, which we'll talk about in the next episode i'm sure um, but but it's one of the biggest takeaways of this film is is just the many scenes that take place by candlelight, uh, and and just to think on that technical level to get this kind of photography uh, in a movie. I mean, I don't even know if if uh, I mean, could this be replicated today, like with, with digital? Uh, I mean, is this a situation where this better served to be shot on actual film than than digital photography?
1: It's so
2: actually uh, interesting you should mention that because I'm as much as I really love the Blu-ray that Warner's put out, aside from its aspect ratio issues, which, you know, is probably too technical to get into, but um, the candlelight scenes do... I mean, there's something about them on film that is completely different from seeing it on DVD. They seem very washed out on digital, whereas on film it just seems like a natural part of the texture of the medium.
0: Yeah, and I, 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 maybe... Probably that's why no one has really tried to replicate the, these scenes uh, again. I mean, uh, Wes, you did bring up Amadeus, um, which is a fantastic film. Uh, actually, one of my early movie-going experiences was seeing Amadeus. Um, I don't think I was quite eight years old like you with um, Barry Lyndon, but I remember being a very, very, very young child watching Amadeus with, with my parents and getting freaked out by the amount of uh, blood and, and uh And I think there's a suicide, attempted suicide scene in that movie. Um, And thinking about it, I don't know why my parents uh, thought I'd be okay with watching uh, a movie like Amadeus being that young. Um, But uh, I guess, Wes, what are your thoughts on uh, digital photography? Do you think digital photography could replicate what Stanley Kubrick was doing here with the the hundreds of candles in in Barry Lyndon?
1: I think they could give it a shot. I don't know that it would look... Exactly the same, but I think they could get pretty close. I mean, they're doing some, some pretty wild things with the digital technology nowadays. Uh, certainly, it would be worth a shot. Uh, but I think just the achievement itself of the, uh, the, the look of the cinematography, which uh, justifiably won the Academy Award in 75, going for that, just making the attempt to do something like that that nobody had ever done before, I think is just really... Uh, an incredibly remarkable accomplishment.
0: And, and I guess getting back to the, the, the 48th Academy Awards, Stanley Kubrick was also nominated for Best Director but did not win. Uh, he, um, Milos Forman won for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But going up against Robert Altman for Nashville, uh, Sidney Lament for Dog Day Afternoon, and Federico Fellini for Amacord, I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, look at this rogues gallery of filmmakers uh, nominated. Uh, it was a very good year. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, uh, wow. Like, all five of these filmmakers right here could easily get an Oscar for the movies that they're being nominated for, but I guess if you did have to pick one, might as well go for the one that won Best Picture that year. Um, not to say that I don't like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Melius Foreman, but, my God, it's, it's just uh, kind of amazing to see these types of filmmakers together all on one page. Um anything else you guys want to talk about with Barry Lyndon? I mean, I, I one thing uh, about this movie is that there are like uh, the worst, the, the battle scenes in this movie. I mean, this movie takes place during, uh, the seven years war, I believe in, in, in Europe. And the battle scenes are pretty, pretty monumental. I mean, they're, they're pretty, pretty epic. I mean, one comes to mind as a, a, a house is burning down and Barry Lyndon saves his, uh, commanding officer, uh, from death. Uh, pretty pretty awesome just thinking that the, these flames were actually it looked like uh the actors were probably in harm's way while, while shooting a scene like this
1: it could very well be i think a lot of the very fact that barry linden was made at all i believe comes out of kubrick's frustrated desire to shoot a film about napoleon it's probably the most talked about of his unrealized projects uh even more so than AI because, you know, at the very least that one did get made, not necessarily under his stewardship, but it did get made. Uh, Napoleon is a story that he had wanted to tell for many, many years. And he was actually kind of close in the late 60s, early 70s to getting something going with that. And then uh, there was a Russian co-production of uh, a Napoleon story with Rod Steiger called Waterloo. It was produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, It came out early 70s and it it bombed it was a huge spectacular failure and because of the the failure of that film kubrick felt that the public was not going to take a chance on another napoleon film anytime soon so he reluctantly shelved his napoleon project and there are reams and reams of uh research that he had they're still in his archives i i plan on taking a look at them myself and you know as I have believe I've mentioned earlier in our series on Kubrick uh, later on uh, in in October of this year the, uh, Los, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art is going to be hosting an enormous uh, Kubrick retrospective uh, exhibit so they're going to be showing all kinds of uh, materials from all of his films, and not just the ones that he made, but the unrealized ones as well, Include the, the Napoleon Project and AI and the Aryan Papers, which was the, the Holocaust film that he wanted to do, which he abandoned again because somebody else kind of beat him to the punch, which was uh, Steven Spielberg making Schindler's List. So, having been frustrated in his desire to make a, a, a film about Napoleon, it only makes sense that he sort of Tried to salvage all of this this work and research and planning that he'd done, and make a film that was sort of set in the Napoleonic era. So that naturally, you're going to have those kind of uh, enormous battle scenes that certainly would have taken place in a in a Napoleon story. And that's, I think, why some of those scenes are uh, are as great as they are. You'll also notice, uh, really uh, sharp-eyed viewers, will notice that there is a sort of a reverse version of a shot in Paths of Glory. In uh, in Barry Lyndon, in one of the battle scenes, you know, there's a, a scene where the uh, it, it takes place in a bunker, right? And the the camera there's a sort of a square hole in the bunker that you can look out and see the uh, the the battlefield. And the camera moves in through that hole, and then you see the exterior, and you see the battlefield, and the battle is in is raging in all its glory. There's an exact opposite of that shot. In Paths of Glory, where it starts out from the exterior of the the battlefield, and then the camera moves out through the hole in the bunker, uh, I, I that can't be a coincidence. I think he's definitely making some kind of a little uh, visual in joke there for for people who are are fans of his work.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, we'll definitely.
1: There's a, an aspect of of this film that
0: we'll talk about in. Um, in the shining episode or our next episode, episode one Oh three, I believe where we'll talk about the shining, um, that I, I want to bring up in that episode and not necessarily this episode, but it does have to relate to this movie, Barry Lyndon. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I guess that will just be a tease for our listeners and West, I guess, um, <laughs> that I will bring that up again. Uh, that, that this moment I, I feel in, in the next episode,
1: um, I mentioned the, uh, the Oscar for cinematography that the film won. Uh, it was given to uh, John Alcott. It's uh, Kubrick's lighting cameraman for uh, the last uh, couple of films. He'd be doing the same thing again on The Shining. Uh, and it also won three other Oscars. Uh, one for costume design. No surprise there. Uh, one for production design, which was by Ken Adam, who had done the production design for Kubrick on Dr. Strangelove back in uh, 64. And of course, he was also very well known for the production design that he did on several of those uh, really great James Bond films of the sixties and seventies. And then it also won for a category that uh, doesn't really exist at the moment. It was a best adapted score because all of the music in Barry Lyndon is classical music. That was of course uh, selected by the director, but rather than use uh, existing recordings, uh, he had all the music was uh, re-recorded for the film, and it was uh, adapted and arranged and conducted by uh, a composer named Leonard Rosenman. Uh, He's done original work. He's done scores for films like *Rebel Without a Cause* and *Fantastic Voyage*, and uh, he won the Academy Award for doing this film. And I, I don't have a problem with that because I this the soundtrack for Barry Lyndon is one of my all-time favorite soundtracks the music in this film is just uh, spectacular and wonderful uh, all the way through uh, th- it was released on vinyl here in the United States but it has never been released on compact disc uh, in the United States i have a french import version that's that's the length i was willing to go to get one of those <laughs> but uh, and we need to talk about some of the some of the actors
2: well, real quick, I just want to say one quick thing about the score, Sure, which I agree is magnificent. And what he really gains by bringing in a composer to adapt it is to bring back that central theme so many times in so many different contexts, like to bring it back in kind of an operatic way uh, at the at Brian's funeral, and then to very quickly turn it on its head to create tension for that uh, – uh, the dual sequence, the 10-minute dual sequence is that same theme, but just – slowed down and so simplified and so effective to have that as a recurring thing
1: yeah i think that was a very good idea well, let's, let's actually uh talk
0: about that dual scene but uh finish go ahead west i'll start to correct
1: well, i just uh, want to talk about some of the really wonderful performances uh ryan o'neill actually does a pretty good job uh, there was definitely some some concern in some quarters when the film was originally released, when they, it was announced that Ryan O'Neal was going to star in the movie, because some people thought that he was kind of inappropriate for a, a Stanley Kubrick film. He was never really regarded as uh, one of our our finer American actors,
0: <laughs> but well, it, just because of that reputation, that he was he was considered like not worthy enough or something. Because I actually think he does a pretty bang up job here in Barry Lyndon.
1: He does. He does a good job. But yeah, I think there are some people who felt that. Uh, he wasn't good enough to be in a Stanley Kubrick film. And I think he he acquitted himself fairly well. And uh, Marissa Berenson, who was uh, a model, and then and this wasn't her first movie, but it was one of her her first movies uh, as Lady Lyndon. She's she's really not given too much to do uh, at first, but then later on, as things get hairy, she uh, she also acquits herself very well. I I I like her in this movie. Um, I. Of course, uh, we, we love Michael Hordern as uh, the narrator. I like uh, Godfrey Quigley as Captain Grogan, uh, the, the friend to uh, Redmond Barry in the, the first act of the film. Uh, that's that's a really nice performance there. Um, Leon Vitali, who plays the older version of Lord Bullingdon, uh, he gets off some really wonderful moments in this film, and then he never acted again. But he actually spent the rest of his career as an assistant... To Stanley Kubrick, you will see the name of Leon Vitali as a special assistant to the director in all the rest of Kubrick's films. He he stopped acting, but he stayed on to work uh, for for Kubrick. So I thought that was kind of a, an interesting note uh, in, in that guy's career. Uh, a, ro- a really nice uh, turn by the actor Murray Melvin as uh, Reverend Runt, who uh, I, he he looks exactly like a character named Reverend Runt should look. I, I love that guy's performance. Uh, there is uh, the return of another actor from A Clockwork Orange, Philip Stone. Philip Stone, who played uh, Alex's father in A Clockwork Orange, now is here in uh, Barry Lyndon as the, the Lyndon family's accountant, Graham. Uh, he uh, he rises to the occasion in the third act, and uh, this is not the last we will see of Philip Stone in a Stanley Kubrick film. <laughs> and I also have to point out, uh, as I mentioned him earlier in our episode on 2001 Space Odyssey, where he was uh, uh, a suspicious uh, Soviet scientist. And uh, here he plays uh, Captain Quinn, the fine actor Leonard Rossiter. He gives such a wonderful comedic performance as Captain Quinn in this movie. Uh, it's hysterical. He's only in the first act, but he's just hilarious. Everything he does, just watch him when you know, the, the they've announced the... Uh, the engagement between Captain Quinn and Nora Brady and uh, the whole uh, Brady bunch is uh, telling him, "Oh, kiss her, kiss the girl." Watch her. he kisses her like he's been practicing. <laughs> it's just hilarious. This guy is such a ridiculous fop. I love it.
0: Well, what I what I enjoy about this film um, is the the civil, uh, civility of this movie. I mean, it's just interesting every time I watch it. Like people have. Uh, grievances with other characters, but they—it seems like they have to go through like so many hoops, or just they have to go through so many. Um, like there's like this set of rules, unspoken rules that all these people have to go through, uh, just to get as what they would call satisfaction. I mean, there's a number of duels in, in this in this film. I mean, the film opens up with a duel and it and ends with a duel, um, and I I I think that's. I mean, we definitely don't live in a time like this anymore where people duel or where people um, uh, have to be like somewhat overly polite or, or genteel to uh, to have grievances with other people. Um, and Stanley Kubrick puts it in a way where it's... I don't think it's a romantic side of it. I mean, it, it does definitely seem um, brutal, but I don't think Stanley Kubrick ever puts it in, in a way that uh, where... I guess we kind of wish that we live like this anymore. I definitely don't get that air from from Barry Lyndon. Um, that's no, just no, very no, no. interesting to me watching it every time.
1: Look at the battle scene, and you you have to be grateful that we live in modern times. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous when you look at how armies conducted themselves in battle back then, that the whole tactic of, well, we're just going to march and let them shoot at us until we get right up in their grill, and then it's going to be hand-to-hand combat. What?! Are you nuts? That is just, you got to be high to think that that's uh, any kind of military strategy.
0: Well, I mean, even the duel, like you, you shoot, you stand your ground then I'll shoot, I'll stand my ground and we'll, we'll just see what happens here. Uh, I mean, at the one, the last duel in this film, uh, you know, uh, Lord uh, Bullington accidentally shoots his gun and, you know, he, he loses his chance, you know, and then um, Barry Lyndon shoots his uh, gun into into the ground as well because I, I guess out of fairness um, but it no, just seems it's, like-
1: it's out of mercy because is, is definitely he could shoot Lord Bullingdon and be done and just go about his business but he's actually the thing is that the, the tragedy of his own son has kind of softened him up a little bit just a little bit and he really does actually figure well if I do this just fire into the ground then I'm giving Lord Bullingdon a way out. And then we can just say, well, we did the duel. No harm, no foul. Everybody can go home and have ice cream or whatever the 18th century version of ice cream is. Uh, and that's the thing is that, that that's one of the things that just makes it so, so crushing in there. Well, then you think that then, well, OK, so now maybe Lord Bullingdon has now learned the value of uh, of a quality of mercy and kind of said, nope, nope, he hasn't. He hasn't gotten his satisfaction. And he's going to take his turn again. The Dick. Well, I, I this can't help guy. but wonder why, why are the rules of the duel changed for, in that instance? Because the, the rules seem to be pretty much the same for every other duel in the movie, which is you're going to turn, you're going to cock your pistol, you're going to fire your pistol at the same time. I, I don't know why in this last duel suddenly the rules are changed and you know, we're going to flip a coin and one guy gets to shoot and then the other guy gets to shoot.
2: Uh, Scott? Maybe, maybe he's uh, risen in class and they do it differently at that stratosphere. No, oh, Maybe. But it it is, like, the great tragedy of the one decent thing Barry does in the whole movie, practically, yep. is then rewarded with his total downfall.
1: No good deed goes unpunished.
2: Indeed. And, I mean, I think going back to what Rudy was saying about the duels, I think Kubrick really undermines them by showing that in both the duels that we get to see the people's faces, nobody really wants to be there, you know? The seconds are all kind of, like, shifted by the process, certainly the people dueling are, like, on the verge of collapsing with nervousness.
1: Well, in that, that first, Barry's first duel with Captain Quinn, oh, you can see he's he's got a real hard-on to be firing that pistol. But he's the only one. Yeah, but you can still see in his face,
2: like, I, I'm not quite sure I'm old enough for this, even though he's determined to go through with it.
0: But it just seems like instead of paying your debt or paying what you, you legitimately owe, granted, what you legitimately owe uh, was kind of cheated from you, but you never knew that, yeah. Uh, uh, it just seems like instead of paying out someone, we'll just, you know, we'll have this civil action of, of of a duel. You know, like, it would just be so much easier if I just shoot you right now, but we have to go through these these hoops uh, just out, out of, like a, like, a dog and pony show or something. And then, you know, there are people watching, and it just seems like it's some sort of an event. Um, and I don't know. It just – it's just – Stanley Kubrick never puts it in in like a romantic kind of way. And I I just find that so interesting. Like these people are being really brutal to each other, but there's still this underlying uh, civility and and this case of rules to them that it almost doesn't seem brutal, but, but it really is. I mean, when Barry Lyndon gets shot at the end of this film, I mean, he doesn't die. he, He loses his leg. And I feel that's, you know, worse than dying. I feel, um, Anything else you guys want to talk about with, with Barry Lyndon?
1: I'm covered.
2: Yeah, I just want to say one last note. Of the, I, too, am in, in complete admiration of Ryan O'Neill's performance here. I think he's kind of an underrated actor. I haven't seen Love Story, which I understand is a lot of people's big sticking point. But here, especially, you just notice how perfectly suited to the screen he is, because he can convey either through Kubrick's direction and contrasting shots or through his own ability just so much going on inside of him and you think about that duel sequence and the subtle shifts he does when he thinks he has the upper hand or when he realizes that, you know, his his good deed will go punished. Uh, I, I really think it's kind of an underrated performance in a lot of regards, and I think he uh, does more than an adequate job taking this character through many decades of life.
0: Yeah, and you could definitely feel a weight to him as he's a young man, you know, a really naive man, to really old drunk uh gone through life has seen practically everything and has gone through a lot of shit and i don't you just really feel the weight of of that character you know going through life and i guess it's appropriate that this film is uh a little over three hours long just so you could feel that i mean i can't imagine this movie being any shorter oh no um and at the same time i wouldn't want it to be any longer but i think it's just you know pretty appropriate where it is in length um and I can, act, I can still see why people don't uh, glom onto this. This is not the first Stanley Kubrick film that pops in your, your head when you think of the filmmaker Stanley Kubrick, but uh, it, it, it seems like it really should be, but this filmmaker has a lot of great films that I can actually see this great film being overshadowed by other great films, um, which I guess is a shame, but you know, it, it, this movie is readily available to watch and highly recommended by all three of us.
1: Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I... I really thought it was important for us to uh, discuss the films of Stanley Kubrick, because we get to talk about all of them, including the ones that people aren't necessarily so hot for. And Barry Lyndon is one that, yes, a lot of people aren't so hot for it. But, gosh, you, you're really missing out if you don't take the time to see this movie. Uh, there's, there's something in there that I think that everybody is going to appreciate.
0: Well, and especially in terms of contemporary cinema, that, that this this film from this great filmmaker seems to be the most influential for uh, filmmakers like Wes Anderson, like Martin Scorsese, like uh, uh, Lars. von Sofia T- Coppola, too. Yeah, Sofia Coppola, Lars von Trier, to an extent that the, the slowness, the slow burniness of this film, you can pretty much see in. Sophia Coppola's work, uh, just the way she she shoots her, uh, her films, you can see where she gets it from. In, in this film, more so than any other Stanley Kubrick film. Um, same thing with Lars von Trier, how he how we did Melancholia. I can see the, the direct influence of Melancholia with Barry Lyndon, um, and I, I think on that way as well that this film is is just as valuable to to cinema and cinema history. As much as a 2001, a space odyssey, uh, as much as a clockwork orange.
1: It's like a, it's like a hidden influence on a lot of other filmmakers. And it's
2: I- like one of those punk bands that nobody's ever heard of, but they influence like every other band you've ever heard of.
1: There you go. It's the velvet underground of a uh, world yeah. cinema. Yes. Uh,
0: on that note, uh, I, let's wrap up this episode of the AuteurCast. Where can we find you online, Scott Nye?
2: Uh, BattleshipPretension.com, uh, Railoftomorrow.com, Shadowlock.com increasingly, but if you go to Railoftomorrow.com, I'll eventually link to everything I write about. Oh, and I'm at uh, CriterionCast.com these days as well.
1: Uh, West Anthony? You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony and head on over to our AutourCast Facebook page as uh, many people have done. I want to express our uh, uh, thanks and gratitude for many of the really wonderful and kind messages that we've received on our Tourcast facebook page uh upon our 100th uh, episode on 2001 a space odyssey a lot of people had some some very kind remarks for us there and i just want to say that uh, we have uh, seen them i've uh, read every one of them and i appreciate them all it's uh, it's really gratifying to know that uh, you know people are really just responding to us and uh, and are are congratulating us on this 100 episode milestone you go to facebook.com slash hit the like button and you will receive updates on everything that we have going on and
0: uh scott if we ever do an episode on sky captain and the world of tomorrow you'll you'll definitely be invited for that episode
2: <laughs> why do you pick that one i didn't know i had such a reputation
0: uh isn't that where you got your your, your twitter thing from it was from oh yes yes that's right yeah
2: which, yeah, I forgot to mention, I'm on Twitter, at Rail of Tomorrow. But yeah, I will talk Sky Captain until the sun comes up.
0: <laughs> and, and that's why you'll be invited, uh, if we ever do a, a one-off episode.
2: Right, the, make the, one, the one film of Kerry Conran. <laughs> I,
0: I'm, has, I'm assuming it's a man, unfortunately. Uh, is that, yeah, it is. Uh, the only film that he's done?
2: It is, as much as he he's was linked to John Carter for a while as well, but he just can't get anything else going.
0: <laughs> oh, that would have been an interesting thing if he did John Carter... Yeah. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter uh, Twitter Twitter.com slash Rudy underscore Obias. That's R-U-D-I-E underscore O-B-I-A-S Autorcast.com, Shakya.com where I'm the movies editor and everything that is Rudy at RudyOBias.com What did you think of uh, Barry Lyndon and the work of Stanley Kubrick? You can send all your feedback to Autorcast at gmail.com You can also leave us a voicemail at 347-878-3430 You can also follow us on Twitter, Twitter Twitter.com slash Autorcast. If you'd like to leave us a review, and rating on iTunes, please do so by searching the words Autorcast and we'll pop right up. On the next episode of The Autorcast, we're going to be discussing Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film, The Shining. I would like to thank Scott Nye from BattleshipProtection.com for joining us here on this episode of The Autorcast.
2: Thanks again for having me.
1: So, closing out this episode of The Autorcast. In the words of Samuel Fuller, extending the language of film sometimes starts with just trying to show one true thing with candles.
0: Uh, thank you for listening to our show goodbye